Well, good morning, Lone Oak First Baptist. It is my joy to be here to start a time as your interim pastor. It's such an honor to be interim pastor at a church that's such a mission-sending, missions-giving church, a church with an absolutely incredible staff, a church with a legacy of incredible pastors and Willis Henson and, and Dan Summerlin, and it is my joy to be with you uh, for this time. It's a great joy to have my family with us. Uh, my wife, Carrie, we've been married for a little over 20 years. She's a native Tennessean. Uh, my children, their names are Jackson, Kennedy, and Madison. We kind of have a dead president theme going with our kids. Inadvertently, that's how it's uh, fanned out. As we begin our time of interim, I want to share with you four promises that I make to you. First of all, I promise to preach the Bible. You do not come here on Sunday mornings to hear the opinions of a sinful man. You come to hear the truth from the divine God. Secondly, I promise to be an encourager. This church has an incredible future ahead, and we're going to encourage and celebrate that. Third, I, I promise to help us keep moving forward. There's no reason we need to put evangelism on hold or membership on hold or missions on hold. We're going to continue to pursue those great things. And fourth, I promise to leave. Now, some of you, some of you after three weeks might think, well, that's probably a pretty good thing that he promised to leave. God is preparing someone to be your next pastor. And my job is to help prepare the church for who a person may be. Now, let me just say this. Your next pastor is not going to be the same as Dr. Dan Summerlin. He is an incredible man, a godly leader, an influential person, uh, a mentor to me. But God's going to bring you someone that he's called for such a time as this. And we're looking forward to who that might be. Over the month of July, we're going to go through a series called Steadfast, Our Unchanging Commitments. We're going to look at five things that the church is committed to regardless of the season the church finds itself in. And today, we're going to come to our commitment to the gospel. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 3 as we look at our commitment to the gospel. And as we prepare for the Lord to speak to us, let's go to him in prayer, ask him to speak to us in a mighty way. Father God, it is our joy to be in your place. It is our joy to be your people. I pray now as we open up your word, you would speak to us in a mighty, powerful way. Lord, I pray you would speak through me, help me to be your messenger to deliver your message to your people for your glory's sake. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Standing in London, England is a monument that doesn't seem like it belongs. Certainly Big Ben, Westminster Abbey, and Buckingham Palace all fit in. But there on the bank of the Thames River in London, England, is a 3,500-year-old Egyptian obelisk. Named Cleopatra's Needle, this 68-foot-tall granite column is covered in hieroglyphics. How did a 3,500-year-old Egyptian obelisk end up in London, England? Well, in the mid-1800s, when Great Britain helped Egypt out with a political conflict, the country of Egypt gifted this obelisk to the city of London. In 1878, when the obelisk was erected, the people in London put a time capsule underneath the obelisk. You all know something about time capsules, don't you? I've been encouraged hearing about the things you found in your own time capsule. Well, in 1878, people in London thought, if our civilization ever goes the way of the ancient Egyptians, we want people in the future to have a picture of the slice of life 
from Victorian England. And so in the time capsule, they place pictures of the 12 most beautiful women of the day. They place a set of coins, some children's toys, newspaper clippings. And there in the time capsule, written in 215 different languages, was a verse from the Bible. What verse do you think people in London would have chosen out of the 31,000 verses in the Bible, what verse would they have chosen that depicts the entirety of Scripture? What one verse would they have chosen that shows the gospel? What one verse would they chose out of 31,000 that summarizes the entirety of what Jesus has done? John 3, 16. John 3, 16. Martin Luther called John 3, 16 the gospel in miniature. Charles Spurgeon called John 3.16 the sole topic of my entire life's ministry. In and Out Burger prints John 3.16 on the bottom of each of its paper cups. Apparel Maker Forever 21 includes John 3.16 on the bottom of their shopping bags. You've seen football games with end zones of someone holding up a sign chanting John 3.16. One of my most memorable John 3.16 moments came when I was doing missions in Mexico. For many years, I was on the board of directors for an orphanage in Mexico. My wife and I made over 50 mission trips over uh, many years, taking groups to and from this orphanage right on the border. And my assignment on this one particular day was to shuttle supplies from a church on the American side over to the orphanage on the Mexican side. They could only take so much over at a time because of tariffs and other rules. And so my job was to cross the border three or four times that day to load up the pickup truck and bring supplies across to the orphanage. Well, after about the third trip, the border guards started to get a little suspicious. What's this white dude in a big pickup truck doing with all these boxes? He's been over three times today. And so they began to ask me questions. Who are you? What are you doing? I'm expl- I explain. I'm volunteering at the orphanage. I'm a minister. Oh, you're a minister, are you? Well, if you're a minister, tell us, what does John 3.16 say? And I don't know if it was the AK-47s. I don't know if it was my being a young age. But in that moment, I froze. I've known John 3.16 since I was a small child. But in that moment, I cannot remember what John 3.16 said. And it was at that point that I felt the Lord was calling me to Mexican prison ministry. (laughs) Thankfully, I was finally able to get John 3.16 out and was set free. We have John 3.16 because of one of the most famous conversations in the entire Bible. It appears in John chapter 3. I'd like to read verses 1 through 4 for you. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. You've come from God, for no one can do the signs that you are doing unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Nicodemus had spent his entire life studying about God. He occupies one of the 71 seats of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He serves as a Pharisee. But while others are thinking that Jesus needs to be taken out, this man Nicodemus thinks there's something truthful about him. He wants to hear more, but no one can know where they're meeting. So he waits for the safety of night. I can picture him on the second floor balcony of his house waiting for the sun to set. Darkness will give him the cover he needs. 
he slips out the door down the winding cobble street and comes to the door of a small house. Jesus is staying here, he's been told. Nicodemus knocks. When the disciples open the door, they're quite shocked to see that a Pharisee is standing at the door. And even more shocked that Jesus would allow the Pharisee to come in and have a conversation with him. In that conversation, Nicodemus says, we believe, I believe that you came from God, but I don't understand all your teaching. And Jesus said, you must be born again. And, and it blows Nicodemus' mind. How can you be born when you're already alive? The Jewish people taught at that time that the way you got to heaven was being born a Jew. If you were born of the lineage of Abraham, you automatically went to heaven. In fact, some even taught that Abraham stands at the gate of hell to make sure none of his descendants accidentally wander into the wrong place. Born again? Start life over? Take a retake, put life in reverse? How can this be? And Jesus responds with the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. As Max Lucado writes, a 26-word parade of hope beginning with God, ending with life, and urging us to do the same. Brief enough to write on a napkin or memorize in a moment, yet solid enough to weather 2,000 years of storms and questions. I'd like for us to read that beloved verse together. You've memorized it, many of you. You may memorize it in different versions, but in the ESV, let's read this aloud together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Over the four phrases of this verse, the Lord communicates the gospel. The first thing it says is this, that God loves for God. This is not your girlfriend talking. This is not your mama talking. Some of us have a face that only a mother could love. This is God talking. The creator of the universe. And what does it say that God, how does God feel about us? The scripture says God loves us. Perhaps the favorite verse of the entire Bible, these are the two most meaningful words. God so loved. Folks, I want you to know this morning, God does not hate you. God loves you. I'll give you an illustration to help show the way God feels about us. Um, I've got a dollar bill with me up here on stage. Um, let me ask you a question. How much is this dollar bill worth? A lot less than it used to be worth, for sure. Uh, but what's it worth? A dollar. Okay, let's say I take the dollar bill and I wad it up and I put it in my hand. How much is the dollar bill worth now? A dollar. Let's say that I take it and I rip off the corner of the dollar bill. How much is the dollar bill worth now? A dollar. Let's say I take a pen out and I give old George Washington, get rid of that receding hairline, give him a little beard and a mustache, a goatee, put a little earring on his ear. How much is this dollar bill worth now? Seven years in prison for defacing government property? How much is it worth? dollar. You see, whether it's been wrinkled, torn, or marked on, it's still worth what it was created to be worth. And so were you. If God were to turn you over, he'd see printed on the bottom of your foot, created in the image of God. God loves you. I heard one pastor put it this way, that God loves everyone from A to Z. That God loves ambulance drivers and airplane pilots. God loves brunettes and blondes. God loves Cubans and Mark Cuban. God loves uh, 
drag racers and drag queens. God loves Elvis impersonators and environmental activists. God loves people from Finland and France and people that think Philippines starts with an F. God loves good people and goofy people, Harry Styles and Harry people. God loves people from India and Indiana. He loves Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel. He loves Corey, I mean Chloe, Courtney Kim, Kendall Kali, and Kanye Kardashian. God loves librarians and lawyers, ministers and missionaries. He even loves Nickelback. God loves orthodontists and optometrists. He loves professors and photographers. He loves Queen Latifah. He loves retired people. He loves people in South Africa, South Dakota, and South Carolina. He loves telemarketers. God loves used car salesmen, vegetarians and veterinarians, William Shatner and Will I Am. God loves x-ray technicians. And God loves you. Why? Oh, you, short you, tall you, heavy you, skinny you, dark you, pale you, old you, young you, sad you, rich you, poor you, content you, confused you. The Bible doesn't just say that God loves you. The Bible says that God so loves you. And God loves zookeepers. That's the best I could do. God loves. Secondly, the scripture says God gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. The Bible tells us that we've all fallen short of the glory of God because of our sin. And because of our sin, it brought separation between us and God. But the great news is God had a plan to bring us back to him through the salvation, through the death of his son. It says in 1 John chapter 4, God is love. That's the good news of the gospel. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God gave his son. What does it mean that God gave his son as an atoning sacrifice? In 1937, Dennis Hensley wrote an allegorical short story called To Sacrifice a Son about a man named John Griffith, who lived in Oklahoma during the Great Depression and moved to the Mississippi River where he got a job operating a drawbridge. Now, it's a fictional story, an allegorical story. And in this story, uh, his job was to make sure the drawbridge was up when ships were going to pass by and the drawbridge was down when the train was coming across the Mississippi River. Well, one day he took his young son to work with him and they're at the banks of the Mississippi River throwing stones into the water when he hears a sound that he was not expecting horn of a train. He looks at the bridge and the bridge is up. It was up for ships to cross. And that moment he's terrified. If he does not lower the drawbridge, if he does not lower the bridge, the, the people on the train will perish. And so he sprints up to the, 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 the control room and he begins to lower the bridge, but he notices down at the ground where the machinery is, it's his son playing on the gears of the drawbridge. He begins to yell for his son, get off, get off. But he can't, his son can't hear him because the train whistle is blowing so loud as it's fast approaching. And the man has an impossible decision to make. Does he? Keep the drawbridge up, saving the life of his son, but killing the lives of hundreds of people on the train? Or does he lower the drawbridge, saving the lives of the people, but crushing the life of his son? As he lowers the drawbridge... He sees his son's body crushed. He looks at the train and says he noticed people continuing about their work, reading the newspaper, taking a nap, sipping their coffee, 
unaware that for them to live, his son had to die. When we say God gave his son, we talk about God sacrificially giving his son as an atoning sin uh, for, to atone for the sin of our body, a sacrificial, substitutionary atonement for our sin. Third thing we see in John 3, 16 is we believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever, that's a great word. Whoever means us all. John Newton, the famous uh, slave ship captain who wrote Amazing Grace, said, I'm glad that verse doesn't say God so loved John Newton because there may be other John Newtons in the world. But the verse says, God loves whoever, and I am a whoever. God loves whoever. We see this throughout Scripture, the blind beggar, the rich man, the prostitute, the pickpocket, the persecutor, the thief, the leper who is deemed untouchable. They were all whoever's invited to come to God. But it says, whoever believes in him. What must they do? They must believe. Believing doesn't mean going to church or growing up in a Christian home. Believing is action. Like, for example, this morning, this stool here, I can tell you that this stool is a sturdy stool. I really hope it is a sturdy stool. We're going to find out. I can tell you this stool right here will hold 400 pounds. I can tell you this stool right here is made of the best metal on the market, screwed in with titanium screws. This stool is the best. It will hold my weight, folks. But you would not truly believe me unless I put my trust in the stool. It's one thing for me to say this stool will hold me. It's another thing for me to trust the stool to hold me. My hunch is that some of you this morning need to trust God in a sitting down kind of way. It's one thing to believe it in your head. It's another thing to believe it by trusting in him. And it's only in him. Whoever believes in him. And then the last word we see here is we live. We live. He says, we shall not perish. That when we die, there's this penalty to be paid for our sin. And we see this dichotomy between John 3.16 and John 3.36. In John 3.16, it says that whoever believes in him will have life. But in John 3.36, just 20 verses later, it says, but whoever rejects the Son of Man will not see life because God's wrath remains on him. That there is a penalty to be paid for our sin. And we have a choice. We can either trust in Christ to take that penalty on the cross or we pay the penalty ourselves. And the payment of the penalty to ourselves is hell. And some of you may say, but, you know, there's punishments never come. I've done bad things and bad things haven't happened. But let me just say, God's delays doesn't mean that God is not going to punish us. In 1999, there was a guy named uh, Clarence Anderson. Cornelius Anderson, rather. He robbed a manager of a St. Charles, Missouri Burger King at Knife Point. He took the money from the bank that day, took the money from the bank bag. Someone saw him do it. He was reported to police. He was arrested and given 13 years in prison. Well, he appealed the ruling for the sentence. And while the appeal was being heard, the Missouri Department of Corrections let him out on bail. And they heard the appeal. He lost the appeal. But because of a clerical error, he was never picked up to go back to jail. The Missouri Department of Corrections thought that he was already in jail. 
And so for the next 13 years, Cornelius Anderson lived life as normal. He got a driver's license. He got married. He started a business. He had a bank account. All the things you would normally do. Living his life as if the conviction had never happened. In July of 2013, 13 years after his conviction, Cornelius Anderson was scheduled to be released from prison. And it was on his discharge date that the Missouri Department of Corrections realized somebody had made a mistake. Will you release Cornelius? There's no Cornelius here. They issued a warrant for his arrest, picked him up at his house, and took him to prison 13 years later. His lawyer said, I always told Cornelius this day was coming. He knew that eventually Cornelius would have to pay the penalty for his actions. Folks, judgment might be delayed, but it never departs. It's the same for us. Let's not confuse God's patience with God's permission. Judgment is coming. But the good news is that the gospel is we don't have to perish. The good news of the gospel is that we can live and not only live eternally, but live abundantly on earth. That heaven is this perfect place of perfected people living with the perfect Lord. So folks, the Bible doesn't have to be complicated. The gospel simply comes down to these things, these four things. That God loves us. Tall you, short you, smart you. And God loves you so much because of your sin, he gave his son to be a sacrifice on the cross. So that if we believe, then we might live. The gospel transforms lives. Has it transformed your life? Has the gospel transformed your life? The Bible says the gospel is powerful. In Romans 1, 16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. He's saying the gospel is powerful. It breaks the strongholds of sin. The the gospel brings salvation to all who believes. It says the gospel unites both the Jew and the Gentile are brought together by the gospel. What would cause a Democrat and Republican to come together? The gospel. What would cause people from rich and poor to come together? The gospel. What, What causes both the criminal and the victim to come together? The gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to do that. And that's how the most famous conversation in the entire Bible ends. Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night. He hears John 3.16. He leaves under the cover of darkness. Understanding that God loves, God gave, we believe and we live. Jesus and Nicodemus part ways and we don't see any interaction between them until about three years later. It's because for us to have life, Jesus had to die on the cross. And John in his gospel, chapter 19, records this, 19 verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Get this, Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound him in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of Passover, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. 
And there we have it. At the end of Jesus' life, when the disciples have scattered, when the people are cowering, it's Nicodemus that buries Jesus. This Pharisee had been transformed by John 3.16. This Pharisee had been transformed by the gospel, and brothers and sisters, it can transform you too. If you're eight, it can transform your future. If you're 88, he can forgive and transform your past. Here's the purpose of the gospel. Shane Pruitt writes that the goal of the gospel is not to affirm you or celebrate you. The goal of the gospel is to rescue you and transform you. The reason we love the gospel is because it leads to transformed lives. And we usually think about these dramatic conversions. These dramatic people who are drug addicts or sex addicts and them coming to know Christ. And certainly that happens and that may be some of your testimony. But look here in John chapter 3. The person whose life was transformed was a good person. We typically like to think that it's the people at the jail that need the gospel. And brothers and sisters, it's a lot of people at the country club too. The gospel transforms. God, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He did not come to make good people better. He came to make dead people alive. And one of those was a man named Adorama Judson. Though he grew up in a pastor's home, he went away for college. And in college, he met a man, a student named Jacob Eames, who told him it was foolish to believe the Bible. And because of the influence of Jacob Eames, Judson left the faith began to depart from the faith and did not believe anything about God or about Jesus. August 9th, 1808, at 20 years old, he broke the hearts of his parents when he announced to them that he had no faith. He wanted to move to New York and write plays for the theater. Six days later, he left his parents, abandoned his faith on a horse that his father gave him as part of his inheritance. Sometime later, Judson was staying at a a uh, small inn in a village that he had never been in before. The innkeeper, when he checked into the hotel, to the inn, apologized. He said, there's a man in the room next to you that's dying, and I'm sorry it may keep you up at night. Just Judson got into his bed, and all night long he could hear the comings and goings, the low voices, the groans, the gasp of a dying man in the room next door to him. It bothered him to think that that man may not be prepared to die. In that moment, he thought about his own death. Am I prepared to die? He thought about trusting Christ like his father had desired for him to do. But he thought, what would happen if I go back to college and, and Jacob Eames, what would he say to me if I told him that I wanted to follow Jesus? But if Jacob could hear the man in agony in the room beside me with no hope for heaven, maybe he would even know that the gospel is true. The next morning when he was checking out, he asked the innkeeper if the man next door was better, and he said, no, unfortunately, he's deceased. Judson was struck with the finality of it all. On his way out, he asked, do you happen to know who he was? Oh, yes, he's a young man from a college in Providence. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames. As Judson remembered the cries of the room next door, of the same person who had led him away from Christ, he realized he needed the gospel. He 
began a follower of Jesus. He followed Jesus in a setting down kind of way, but he didn't stay seated for long. In fact, the Lord compelled on his heart to become a missionary to the foreign lands. And he was one of the very first missionaries from North America to travel to Myanmar or Burma. And in that traveling, his, his wife, Anna, is going to go with him. And as he's asking his father-in-law for his daughter's hand in marriage, here's what he writes his father-in-law. In a moving letter to his future father-in-law, he writes this, I have to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjugation to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, to persecution, and perhaps even a violent death. Can you consent your daughter to all of this for the sake of the one who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. What would cause a man and his wife to give their life on the mission field? The gospel. What would cause a young family to leave the comforts of America to go to Central Asia or to go to Western Europe to share the good news with the people? It's the gospel. What would cause people to respond by throwing away their sin and being transformed by God? The gospel. We love the gospel. Let's stand and pray, shall we? Father, it is our indeed joy to be people you love, that you love us enough to give your son as an atoning sacrifice. And I pray now, Lord, as we respond to the gospel, if those who are here today, Father, who have yet to follow you in a sitting down kind of way, that you would prompt their hearts to do that as we sing. In the name of Christ we pray.